I'm Raul Guerrero, and welcome by Dystoplicans to the Dystopian Republic. Our story for today begins on the sunrise of October 11th, 1998. Breakfast was fresh, sweet, and flavorsome over at a public housing condo in Hambleton. Though much smaller than the mansions and estates around it, the state of its luxuriousness wasn't too shabby. A pregnant trinity munched with a grin as Eldon Sr. excitedly went on and on about the get-together he was about to go to. That gathering was being held by the Bromelian Boys Club, a fraternity known for having many of Bromelia's elite men in its membership roster. Xander Sr., Joby Sr., Robbie III, and Rounds I, to name a few. For the longest time, Eldon yearned to be among the privileged, wearing their clothes, eating their food, speaking their lingo, chilling at their hangouts, but most of all, having their kind of money, the type of wealth that frees one from struggle and loserdom. Feeling a tad crossed by his yearning, Trinity told him that she didn't care how rich or poor he was. What mattered to her were the contents of his heart. Eldon asked her how far she was willing to go with that statement, asking her if she'd stay with him if they, Bliss, and their unborn baby boy ended up on the streets begging for money. That thought never having occurred to her, Trinity couldn't give him a yes or no. Eldon took her silence as proof of his point that she could say money's only an object all she wants, but that won't make its ability to make and break marriages any less prevalent. He hit home the duty he and Trinity had to support their kids to the best of their ability. Eldon boasted the good standing he was in with regard to that obligation, calling her out for not having done Jack to pull her weight. She scorned him for daring to imply that she was lazy, citing all the acting roles she's done since hitting puberty. Eldon pointed out that the credits Trinity garnered were for school plays, amateur gigs, propaganda films, and no-name roles. He told her that in this day and age, her knowledge and skills were 30% of the game, whereas likability and connections comprised the other 70. Eldon, for one, graduated from the University of the Capital with bachelor's degrees in business and economics. He derided Trinity for having just a high school diploma, a feat she was mere great points from not achieving. As much as she wanted to tell him how offended she was at what he said, she couldn't spit it out because she felt that if she did, she'd lose him, the roof over her head, and her kids. Sitting quietly, Trinity took his criticism without complaint, making Eldon take pity on her such that he called her the only gal he'd screw and have kids with. She forced her revulsion below her esophagus, thanking him for his kindness. A honk from outside sprung Eldon into kissing Trinity goodbye. As he left, his wife diffidently and uneasily looked on. Eldon stepped into a German limo and sat next to a man who was arguably the most elite of them all. Habsburgo the Six. They shook hands in a manner that slapped forward and back, 
poked fingertips connected their indexes and thumbs into a triangle, kissed palms, collided fists, slapped shoulders, and exchanged peace signs. Eldon tried his hardest not to tick Hop's boogle off by messing up the club's handshake. He was intense about not making a complete donkey out of himself in front of the very people who could give him the riches and privilege he was so desperate to have. When the limousine got moving, Eldon realized that he wasn't the only one looking to climb up the societal ladder. In other limos, Seada, Andrino Sr., and Edmundo Sr. were with their elite mentors, and so were Mia's father, Malone, and Nova's father, Sefton. Meanwhile, in Rusalka, all evidence of Flavio Jr.'s murder and Manola and Candida's abductions were poured, sprayed, wiped, and dried clean. The house where it all happened silently swooshed in its absence of clothes, makeup, money, and ammunition. Dina sped her other car, a sedan, south on the North Sur Highway, then turned sharply to the east. She drove with Windsor, Eileen, Keller, Blythe, and Norwood in tow, freshened up, smoothed like gel, and dressed to impress. Their destination was the annual inhibition break at Cleine Holtz in Loretta River, La Cordillera de l'Est. The club's ownership of the campground was how its Rich Boys Grove nickname came to be. It was where the six were to work as escorts, pleasing the men mentioned earlier. The clothes on them were identical in style to the ones they wore the previous night, but were cut and stitched to flaunt Dina's feet, Keller's legs, Windsor's bulge, Blythe's backside, Norwood's abs, and Eileen's breasts. Despite feeling naked, their eyes focused on the task at hand, ending the first person on Dina's binder, Hobbs Burgo. He was a major financier of Roy Sr.'s revolutionary efforts during the Civil War, quite an aberration given that most of his contemporaries sided with Gregorio. The remarkable tale of how he went from being an indicted Ponzi schemer to a revered financial titan would make what became of him all the more sensible and believable. But that wasn't what earned Habsburgo his spot in the binder. It was the fact that he openly and proudly bragged about his money being why the Black Hornets liberated Lobotown and gave the Yellow Jackets exactly what they deserved. For the six, it was him flat out admitting to being an accomplice to the murders of many they loved. The normally quiet riverfront town right on the province's border with La Gran Lanuda was now the host of the nation's most exotic parade and the last two cars of that train were the Six's car and a sangria tour bus that got the boppers out screaming. Entering the Holtz, they understood that they wouldn't have their houses soundproofing to protect them this time around. The Six would have to somehow get Habsburgo by himself, kill him, and leave the campground without anyone noticing. Upon stepping out, they encountered Barrett, Garrett, and Jarrett right then and there. The boys were delighted to see Blythe and Contrarawise reuniting under a gentle, pleasant, and dotting embosom. She felt blessed to see her brothers 
after her parents, Barrett Sr. and Beasley, completely disowned her for staying friends with Dina. The brothers hugged and kissed. Eileen and Keller waved and greeted Dina and Windsor, but gave Norwood the complete cold shoulder. He retaliated by saying that it was effing swell that the perverts from the red lights had come back for more folly. When Blythe told him never to say that again, Norwood yelled that her brothers started it. The bad blood between him and the singers had its origin in the Lobo Town bubble, where its place atop Gregorio society was itself a pyramid of castes that turned Blythe into the rope whose love her boyfriend and brothers were tugging for. Garrett wanted to know why the six were dressed like porn stars, getting Jarrett to joke about them whoring for gray hair, pot bellies, wrinkly skin, and limp penises. Barrett called his brothers out for their disrespect and apologized to the six, quelling their ire enough not to want to make them their next three victims. Blythe explained to her brothers that today was the day that she and her friends will finally strike it rich, because the men they'll be entertaining were money incarnate. Even though the boys found her explanation less than realistic, they weren't at all suspicious of why the six chose to work as escorts for the break. Not long after the events convening, the boys wasted no time going backstage to prepare for their performance, and the six dove straight into the escorting. The break progressed past the morning and into the afternoon, not a hitch or hateful word in sight. It was obvious from the start that Hobbs Burgo was Mr. Popular, foiling the Six's efforts to get him alone as every guest wanted to talk or be near him. Blythe tried charming him into going on a hike with her under the pretense that she'd make the effort worth his while if he knew what she meant. Hobbs Burgo checked out her whole body, then told her that he didn't do women with watermelons for butt cheeks. Malone, Sayada, and Sefton joined him in laughing at her blushing expense. Feeling Blythe's humiliation, Eldon told them to leave her alone. That humored the three into ganging up on him and saying that they'll call her whatever effing name they want. From Malone to Sefton, they misogynistically slurred Blythe into oblivion. The superiority Habsburgo gazed on with exaggerated its contemptuousness, eating the influence he had over them right up. Deep in Blythe's shame, her temper sat on a brass burner, beginning its ascent to a rapid vaporization. Wanting to have a word with Eldon, Habsburgo instructed her to be a deer and entertain his free postulants, shivering her into imagining her skin going through an automatic car wash machine. Rounds led Windsor and Norwood along the hiking trail, hooked his arms around their waistlines and grasped their belt buckles. His escorts tried approaching Habsburgo, but were merrily broadsided by the man they're with. Rounds relished the birds chirping to the fragrant quiet, reminding him of his restful childhood in Albaland. Windsor shared in his enjoyment, 
but Norwood was over it faster than the snap of a finger, wanting his John to hurry up and get down to the sex. His cool was lost when he saw Windsor rest his head on Rounds' shoulder. He aggressively forced his way out of his John's arm hook, skidding five feet back and upsetting him and his fellow escort. When Rounds asked what the matter was with him and if he had gone mad, Norwood wanted him to quit the teasing and get right to the intercourse so that he and Windsor could be left alone and not have to hear kitty stories no one gave two Fs about. In a Twitter, Windsor assured Rounds that he didn't mean what he said, peeving him into saying that what Norwood yelled out came from his heart. But he conceded that the carnal impression he made with the young men was his fault. Rounds did not have sex on his mind, elaborating that all he wanted was to have two friends to hang out with and that Windsor and Norwood just so happened to be the pair he stumbled upon. Norwood called what he said a load of you-know-what and thumbed his nose at Windsor for believing it. Windsor denied taking anyone's side but said that the two of them should consider themselves lucky that Rounds' intentions were benevolent, something he couldn't say about some of the other men. Rounds understood what he meant by that, explaining that this break was his first. Norwood didn't need him to explain why he was invited, given that he was Sinclair's vice president. Rounds stated that his superior was originally going to attend, but came down with an undisclosed illness the day before, and so he's attending the break instead. His yearning to experience it for himself made showing up not a problem, but after witnessing what the break was really like, Rounds could safely say that he won't ever come back unless ordered to. Surprising his escorts, he went as far as calling it a front for sad, insecure men to realize their depraved fantasies with impunity. Norwood told Rounds to add himself to that roster of pathetic little man-children. He looked below his belt and grabbed him in an attempt to expose his groin. Rounds struggled to get Norwood's hands off of him as Windsor begged his friend to stop. Norwood asked his John why an old fart like him was resisting, feeling that he should be raising his hands in victory over getting what he wanted. When he felt his crotch be partially exposed, Rounds shoved him onto the hiking bridge and almost over it and 30 feet down to the river abottom the ravine. Norwood charged at him like a bull seeing red, but Windsor restrained him before he could be within his John's reach. He broke free of his hold and beat his tail, breaking through his defensive hands and shoes. Norwood knocked Windsor on his back, grabbed his shirt, and was about to mess his face up real bad. His friend apprehensively begged him to stop and told him that he was sorry. That put the brakes on Norwood's violent rage, then showed him the wits he was way out of. Round speedily made himself presentable again, called 
his escorts, nutty lunatics, and ran away as if he was running from a group of thugs intending to leave the break as he couldn't stomach it for a second more. Damn the consequences. Norwood unhanded Windsor and fell kilometers into a horrific memory that he couldn't erase from his mind no matter how hard he tried. Instantly figuring out the thoughts that were consuming him, his friend hugged him, got up, and maintained his tight embrace until he was back to the calm state he was in at the start of the hike. The hurt that messed Norwood up was void of sorrow or weakness, but bubbled his umbrage and fumed his mortification. Windsor told him to look on the bright side because now Rounds wasn't standing in their way of getting to Habsburgo. That put a smile to Norwood's face, taking those two in the direction of the cabins. Where they were headed was a bumpy scatter of cabins no larger than bedrooms. Its stillness was the hiking trail's motionlessness, making it the place for privacy. Joby and Eileen strived to get their breaths back after big truckloads of coition. She sat with nothing on, but Keller did so in only his boxers on the porch, dwelling on a memory early on in his life that haunted him still to that day. The sex he partook in wasn't a problem for him. In fact, he was more of a willing participant than Eileen was, even though he was nowhere near as vocal about it. Joby urged her to come to her friend's aid, feeling that it'd be a nice thing for her to do. He signed and gave Eileen a check that was worth $10,000, chump change for a man with his kind of power, the then governor of La Cordillera de l'Est. She and Joby professionally shook hands before he put his clothes back on and went on his way. With him no longer in sight, Eileen rubbed Keller's ribs and nestled his upper body in her arms, warming his distress away like Vicodin, numbing a migraine. The sense of responsibility she felt for his well-being had its foundation set in grade school. Eileen had to toughen up so that the other kids wouldn't eat Keller alive. In doing so, she acquired a feeling of power that would taint the way she saw her relationship with him. Behind the stage curtain, Barrett used a heavy equipment box to stretch his legs, and Jarrett ballooned his pride with how he looked in the mirror. But Garrett trembled and looked around unsettledly, despite being the best dressed and looking of the three. Offered a penny for his thoughts, he told Barrett that something didn't feel right. That made his brother notice the knots that his guts were in. When Jarrett asked them what their deal was, he was told that perhaps the three of them should consider leaving the Holtz before something truly terrible happens. That response infected him with the unease, making his brothers sweat out their dread. At the picnic tables, the sweats Andrino and Edmundo broke out contained the same worry-filled chill, albeit with a suspected reason and source in mind. When they and many others crowded around Habsburgo, the six joined in on that swarm, a move 
that workers simply did not make unless they were told otherwise beforehand. Secondly, as the sextet was being split off to entertain their respective Johns, they overheard Norwood promise to give Rounds a hike he'll never forget for as long as he had a beating heart with a voice that echoed like it was born at a fire and brimstone. And thirdly, when Andrino and Edmundo tried to have Dina be their girl to spend time with, she gave them a look that struck them with a horror so profound that it's been plaguing their thoughts all day long. The men wasted no time telling every member they saw that the escorts were going to murder them all, only for those warnings to be dismissed as them crying like that boy from the classic fable. Andrino concluded that nothing he or Edmundo could say would get their bull-headed brethren to believe them, seeing the mistreatment Eldon received. All they could do now was get out of the line of fire while they still could. Andrino and Edmundo ran to the parking lot and came across Rounds, who was running to his limo, pushing out of them a relief that was happy to see that he, at least, will make it out alive. They flagged him down, and he asked them what they wanted, in no mood to talk. The men told Rounds what they tried to tell the other members, who in response told them that he wouldn't put it past the six, considering that one of them tried to assault him. Andrino was incredibly sorry to hear that, peeving him into wanting none of his pity. Edmundo said that the three of them shouldn't just leave and let their brethren stumble onto their disaster. In action rounds had no problem letting them do. Andrino spelled out to him that leaving right now would render them complicit before the fact. Not wanting to spend any time in jail, Rounds reluctantly agreed to stay with him and Edmundo. That rewarded him with a sincere, heartfelt thanks, which he took out of his newly found tolerance of the two men. With time not on their side, they rushed to a row of payphones, but found that the cords for every one of them had been recently cut, forcing out every F-word they could quietly shout or yell in their heads. Neither Rounds, Andrino, nor Edmundo had cell phones on them, which didn't matter because even if they did, there was no signal anywhere near the Holtz. In fact, the closest place that had any signal at all was the main street of Loretta River. So they hopped into their cars and sped to a cafe Andrino knew for sure had a payphone. The second they stepped in, they stood out like sore thumbs to customers and staff alike. One waitress asked the men if they should be at the break, pushing rounds to explain that they were there and that a drastic change in plans had occurred, prompting him and his two associates to need the payphone so that they could call the police. Asked why they wanted the law involved, Andrino explained that six escorts somehow weaseled their way in and were about to massacre everyone there. That flooded the dining room in a sea of gasps that tightened chests, jolted nerves, and uneased postures. Then, 
an off-duty cop radioed dispatch requesting all units to head for Clayine Holtz. En route, in no time, the fleet was ready to get themselves some would-be murderers. As that was happening, Dina awoke from her nap with Xander and Robbie in the cabin they took over. Her eyes twinkled when her relieved men thanked her for giving them the best sex ever. Dina tiredly replied that she'd do it over and over again, lustfully sticking her tongue out while exclaiming that it's what she lived for. Xander assured her that there was a lot more where it came from later tonight when the hard liquor starts to flow. Robbie asked Dina if she could hold her hormones and liver until that point, humoring her to say that in Gregorio's name she will. That sobered him and Xander in such a way that it putrefied their libidos. Their flushed winces perplexed Dina, irritating her into extending her finger at how Gregorio was responsible for every fortune they had. She added that Xander and Robbie would have been feculent indigents had he and his cross not stepped up to the plate. Robbie told Dina not to think for a second that he and Xander weren't thankful for what Gregorio had done for them, adding that neither of them would disown him even if their lives depended on it. She asked the men why they've been acting like their one true ruler had never popped out of his mom's vagina. Xander answered that his and Robbie's positions in society made mentioning Gregorio complete and other blasphemy. He stated that the former ruler was a person to be proud of back when the country first became his to rule, but now that Gregorio and the Yellow Cross were no more, both were now toxic to touch and radioactive to be near. Dina thought that it was easy for Xander to say, as he didn't have to learn that the people he loved were dead, nor had to bury their thrashed bodies in unmarked graves. Knowing what she was talking about, Robbie knew what it was like to lose loved ones and see them be buried so dishonorably, but realized that life goes on and they must move on as well, whether by paving one's own path or getting back what one lost. A spring in Dina popped, hacking her off enough to hastily dress back up. Xander asked her where she was going, getting himself and Robbie told to keep their disloyal money, as it was clear to her that they and everybody else were the same. Dina stormed out before either man had a chance to ask her what she meant by that. The stomps she pushed down were alloys of iron and running cheetahs in a temper over how the mission at hand had broken far off the tracks. Dina was as good as ready to go insane, doing away with every living thing she could touch, but that impulse would stay a thought as she heard the man she was looking for. At a small grass circle, Hobbsburgo reduced Eldon to a grade school boy for siding with a lady of the night when he should have been laughing with his brothers. Eldon yelled that Malone, Sayada, and Sefton were not his brothers, never were, and never will be. That got him slapped around and disparaged for talking back to his boss. 
A particularly secluded cabin spasmed at desks shakes as things got noisy in its interior. Sayada and Sefton were having a hard time keeping Blythe from running out in fear. Malone came too from the haymaker that smashed his nose in and dealt her parietal bone a blow that was equally forceful. Stunned and on all fours, she turned white, seeing the men unveil their bags of devices meant to torture her and induce pleasure at her expense. Her attackers took a moment to salivate and exchange panting smiles, harking back to the fun they had making Eldon suffer as teenagers. It was like the men were beating him up, shoving him around, and demeaning him in front of the whole school all over again. Their chance to relive what they did to Eldon was literally on its hands and knees. Mincing no words, Habsburgo told Eldon that he could either get with his program and move up society's ladder or continue to resist his every turn and spend his life stuck in a loop between the floor and first step. Looking into his eyes, he saw that his mentee wanted his name to be respected and revered. It touched Habsburgo in that he was where Eldon was when he was younger, wanting to awaken the Brumel name from the life support his father put it in. From the moment he first saw his resume, he knew that his mentee could be the future of Habsburg 6. But when Eldon started working, Habsburgo noticed right away that he wasn't as loyal to the company as he was to himself. And so, he had him work as his chief assistant. Habsburgo felt that the close leash he had on Eldon would push him to be unequivocal in his subservience, hence why he invited him to the break as his guest. He now realized that it would take more than a leash for that loyalty to come. Nearing the circle's arc line, Habsburgo and Eldon stopped at the sight of Dina stormily and indelicately advancing toward them. Behind her back, she screwed a silencer onto a pistol she sneakily stole from Robbie as she left the cabin. When Dina drew out the gun, Habsburgo froze and Eldon leapt in front of him as she shot six rounds. As he went down, his boss was in disbelief, allowing her to fire her last bullet. Habsburgo clutched his ribcage and fell on one knee as blood poured out of his mouth. Then three shots rang out, startling Dina as well as Windsor, Norwood, Eileen, and Keller, and everybody else, including Rez and Tress, who were moments from performing. Covered in blood splatter and stooling bricks like crazy, Blythe's grip on the gun she furtively snatched out of Malone's slacks pocket quivered as he, Sayada, and Sefton lay severely wounded from bullets through where their intestines were. She really did not want to open fire, but the cruelties that the men were about to commit forced her hand. The fleet, Andrino and Edmundo, called up, arrived at the Holtz, finding that its front gate had been repeatedly rammed on. Fearing the worst, they raided the campground and ordered everyone to calmly and quickly leave with their hands up in the air. Upon finding the men who were shot, the fleet requested paramedics declaring an emergency situation. 
Loretta River residents joined Andrino and Edmundo in gazing with terror as police, ambulances, and helicopters hurried toward the Holtz. Like the people there, they also heard the shots Blythe fired, having seen and heard various animal life run or fly away. Miles beyond the ramped through fence, Dina frantically drove her friends through forest, making their ride as rocky and sickening as the six-seater would allow. Her driving became so erratic that she had four close calls with trees. Not only that, Dina came within eye blinks of fishtailing out of control after each of those near misses. She unwittingly drove the car down a steep slope that faded out the forest that secreted the Holtz from the world. The Six's descent ended with them dive-bombing onto a back road that lined below the demarcation between concealment and openness. Dina stopped at a nearby rest area and found that the damage to the car was substantial. She fell with her friends into a glum they hadn't been in since the fall of Lobotown, which was four days from its third anniversary. How Dina shot Hobbs Burgo and the bullets Blythe fired had them run and drive out of the Holtz without paying heed to whether anyone saw or were pursuing them. The Six believed that it was highly likely that many of the men got clear mental pictures of their features and wardrobes, but even worse, they knew Blythe's brothers met up with them before the event, saw them walk with their johns, and found that they weren't present when police arrived. Dina made the conscious decision to call up Dean Jr., tell him what happened at the Holtz, and girlishly beg him to get her and her friends out. Her brother so wanted to scorn her to death for what she did, but chose not to, caring too much about her and her friends. So instead, Dean told the Six that he hoped that they were ready to spend the rest of their days in a concealment akin to the one Mosley and Turnbull were in. His sister and her friends didn't care what they had to do to remain free, believing that anything would be better than rotting and dying in a Bromelian prison. A black van arrived, and its paramilitarist occupants didn't have to exert any force to rope tie and veal blackout hoods over the six. The occupants removed the license plates, tore and peeled off VIN numbers, soaked the car in gasoline, and set it on fire. Their vehicle in flames, the six were relieved that any information that could link them to its ownership was now burnt to a crisp. In the dead of night, they were rushed to a long-distance cruiser sailing off from the harbor of Agnes Beach, La Costa del Norte, to its counterpart in the Sajonian Islands. Like the Adaloon Islands in Island Chain, and like Albaland, it hid secrets that were nefarious, but located 52 miles off the coast from the west. The six were intrigued that the militants didn't change their appearances, have them assume new identities, or did a thing to keep others from seeing them. They then saw a flag that would explain all, rendering such precautions unnecessary. At that point, the six could say, beyond any doubt, that they're finally free again. Their salvation was a community where barbed wire circled along the tops of its gates, 
guarded by pit bullish militants ready to attack any living thing that tried to breach or escape the perimeter. Despite its restrictiveness, the six were lucky that the boundaries before them weren't as severe as the ones keeping Mosley and Turnbull safe. As for their binder, they grudgingly decided to shelve their hunt permanently, not seeing how it could be finished now. The six really wanted to carry on with it to respect its officers' wishes, but felt that they'd be better off aborting the mission rather than fail it. But their entry into their bungalow, for all its warmth, was by no means a signal that their battle with Bromelia's arms of the law was anywhere near over. The nation they were hiding in would soon step onto the world's stage in an unbelievable way. And as fate would have it, that entry would expose more than a few dirty little secrets. And that was Rich Boy's Grove. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.